0: Thank you for joining us for Friends and Followers, a podcast brought to you by the Seton Shrine, where stories of those who were inspired by Mother Seton's life and mission are shared. It is our hope that you might find inspiration as well, and a deeper understanding about who Elizabeth Nancy is. And you can subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes. We hope that you enjoy them. Thank you. Hi,
1: everyone. Thank you for joining us today on Friends and Followers. This week we thought we'd do something a little different. Bridget and I had the opportunity to speak at Our Lady of the Fields Parish for their Lenten series. We chose to speak about how Elizabeth lives Lent daily. So I hope you enjoy our podcast this week, and I hope you're having a very peaceful Easter season. Thank you.
0: Bridget is the Education Programs Manager at the Shrine of Elizabeth Ann Seton, which is all the way out of Emmitsburg, that's where Elizabeth Ann Seton is buried. And then we also have Lisa Donahue, who's the Museum Educator at the same shrine. Imagine that. So um, so they both are seeped in St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, and uh, they both have studied a lot about her life. So we're grateful that they are here with us. So thank you, guys. So, we're going to have to try the mics. And don't worry, I will go and turn them off if they are low. Trust me. So, look up for it. Hello, can everybody hear me okay? okay. Can you do that better? Oh, okay, no. Thank you. Um, my name is Bishop. I've been working with Lisa for a number of years now, and we're happy to be here with you tonight to kind of share with you about Elizabeth Ann Seton, um, a woman of our times, early American history. And as much as we would love to share as much as we can about her, there's so much that we can only cover in what, like, 30 minutes if we're told. <laughs> so um, we figured that. We will present to you in a way that we work with each other. Um, we do a podcast, it's actually Lisa's little project. Um, it's called Friends and Followers. And if you haven't heard of any about episode, um just go to our website or just type in Elizabeth Ann Seaton, Friends and Followers, and something will pop up on Google. And um from there you can kinda hear all the people that knew Elizabeth Anseaton Seaton, one shape or form one way or another, and how they have found a friendship in her one way or another, just like we do. So we figured we will kind of start with that and get a little insight of how we work together and how we like to talk about Elizabeth Ann Seton. And um, since this Lent, we thought that we would open it up to more of like a theme. Because like I said, there's just so much about her that we're not even going to hit the tip of the iceberg on, on what we can share about Elizabeth. And um, But we thought if we could look at the Lenten theme, and I feel that on some levels, you look at her as an incredible woman of faith. She didn't really have a plan, but she followed God's will. And when we talk about the course of her life, you can kind of almost see on some level of her as a suffering servant. And uh, so Lisa's going to help guide this conversation. So if you don't mind, we would love to sit down or kind of put us in a little bit of ease. OK, wonderful. Okay. Um, can, can you hear me? i think to
1: hold it up, too. <laughs> now, can, now can you hear me? OK, sort of. Um, so as Bridget said, we're not going to give a whole overview of Elizabeth's life, which is very interesting in itself. But we kind of want to jump forward to um, when she's in Italy. Um, Those of you that don't know, her husband was very sick. They went to Italy, excuse me, they went to Italy to um, hoping that he would become better, that a change of air would do him good. When they get to Italy, he's immediately quarantined because they thought he had yellow fever. He had what we think was tuberculosis. Um, When, you know, Elizabeth was a very spiritual person. She was seeking her whole life. There's comments that she makes as young as three, four years old, where she's um, thinking about God. He's very much involved in her life, but it's really um, in the Lazaretto that we begin to see where it's gonna go. And what's so beautiful about Elizabeth is that you can see the layers build with her. When she's in the Lazaretto with her husband, she writes at the very beginning. She's so sad because Um, It's a prison, basically, and they were given some things like blankets and pillows by the family. They were going to stay with the Baliki family, but it was her and her husband and her eight year old daughter, and it's a brick floor and stone walls, and there's bars on the window. So it's a prison. And at first she's very sad, but over the six weeks, she starts to realize and be thankful and as does her husband that they're there together because they're praying together. They're reading from the Bible. And he's asking her questions like, will I be saved? Will I be able to go to heaven? So this is where um, she really starts pondering, what does it take to get to heaven? And so we see her asking those questions. When he's released from the Lazaretto, he dies just a few days later. So he dies in Italy. This is at the end of December, December 27th. She's there for the next four months. She's there through Lent, and I think that this is where Elizabeth really begins living Lent. I mean, she really lives this the rest of her life. She starts to um, focus on what it means to die and how to get to eternity.
0: Did you want to add anything? Well, yeah, because, like, ever since she was three and four years old and she lost her mother and she lost her baby sister, you know, she's growing up pretty motherless, even though her father remarried, and her mother had children, so she does have half-siblings, but in a way, she was motherless, and she's always had thought and looked up to heaven, and said, like, this is where I want to be. I want to be up in heaven. I want to be with my mother. I want to be with my sister. I want to be with God, and so you see that, you know, that little seed of her in her spirituality really, like, take a planning. And then from there it grew and then when she suffered not only you know going to the loss of her husband but she had other deaths prior to her husband that again um she grieved over them but she continued to look towards god and through her grief but i really do think that it was the death of her husband where she kind of had that pivotal moment about what it means to strive for eternity and from that moment she not only was preoccupied with eternity, as you could say, but she, and she longed for it, but she hoped for others to reach into eternity. And um, so from that moment on, you know, she goes through her conversion and um, she travels back from Italy into New York. Again, facing a lot of trials and tribulations. She's 29 years old, a young widow with five children, she has to make a living for herself and she's also discerning to Catholicism. And at that time, in that era, there was a lot of prejudice against people in the Catholic faith. Um so she suffered those trials and tribulation.
1: Yeah, and if I can just bring up a couple points there, like when she is in Italy between January and the beginning of April, she's she's thinking about things like fasting. Um Uh, amila feliki one of the families that she was staying with she's watching her fast and she's curious about it and what does it mean and she references that her minister in new york had said that that was an old custom it's not something we do anymore but she's starting to appreciate the fasting and then she has questions about well what about eternity? And how do you get to eternity? And so she's asking all these questions. And I think another important thing to notice is that when she comes back to New York, they had already suffered a bankruptcy before they left. She still had her home and things like that. But when she comes back from Italy, she loses everything because her husband's now dead. So there's no potential for income. She has family around her telling her, don't become Catholic. This is what's best for you. People were giving her money to help support her, her and her children. She makes the decision to become Catholic because she feels in her heart that that is what is right. And she loses a lot. She suffers a lot
0: um, by making that decision. In fact, she even quotes in um, during the time in Italy that in, in further understanding the Catholic faith, she um, has learned to desire God much more intensely. And she even said, How happy we would be if we believe what the good souls believe. So, with that, coming back into New York and converting, you know, she made that decision. And she said, To the Catholics, I will go and try to be a good one. Yeah. So, you see, over
1: the next few years, she is encountering, now, Elizabeth was. Her family, her husband was very well-known. She knew a lot of really well-known people. Um, and that included some Catholics. Her husband knew of Bishop Carroll, so he knew of Elizabeth in turn. So when she decides to become Catholic, she immediately has these connections, which benefited her a great deal. I mean, she's asked to come to Baltimore. She starts teaching, and then she comes to Emmitsburg. And, and in that time, she starts having this group of sisters. She starts having these students Uh, There's this other layer. Immediately within six months of coming to Emmitsburg, her sister-in-law dies, who was with her, Harriet, and then four months later, her other sister-in-law dies. It's really in um, the fall of 1811, when her oldest daughter is sick, that we see that next layer kind of build with Elizabeth. Um, Anna Maria is very sick. This was her oldest child. This was the person who had been in Italy with her. This was who at three years old, she said, is my future friend and confidant. And now she's losing her to a very painful death, according to Elizabeth. Um, And she even writes to a friend of hers, a priest friend of hers, that she doesn't really feel like being nice. She doesn't feel like being charitable. She is mad that her daughter is dying. And it's her daughter who turns it around and is like, but this is what you've wanted for me. This is what you've been asking for me is to go to heaven, to go to eternity.
0: And even then, um, her daughter is almost putting comfort back to Elizabeth. She's dying, actively dying, but she is helping Elizabeth already through her grief and strengthening her spirituality um she even takes her vows on the deathbed and becomes a sister of charity saying you know this is what you want this is what you have she found elizabeth her mother guiding her to be um so i think as much as grief that elizabeth experienced afterwards i mean she was angry i mean there was this whole story in the cemetery um Lisa knows the story way better than I do. But,
1: yeah. So it's Anna Maria dies in March, like Bridget said, and Elizabeth is, is okay. She even tells her family that she's okay. But then that following fall, in October, she goes out to the cemetery, and she's at Anna Maria's grave, and she wants a sign that Anna Maria has made it to eternity. And she calls it a serpent. A serpent comes on the grave, and she has that... Re- I think the way we all would have where she's like, great, that's what I get for an answer prayer. I get a serpent. So she drags it out of the cemetery, runs away, doesn't lock the gates, remembers the wild boars that dig up the graves. And then she comes back to lock the gate. She said that she falls to the ground, frustrated, sad that her daughter has died. And she feels that she can't go to Bishop Carroll. She can't go to Father Dubois, who was running the seminary. So she goes to Father Brute, who was relatively a new priest in the area. And
0: And he became her spiritual advisor.
1: um, Over the next six to nine months, they're looking at Anna Maria's writings. They're looking at what God says about being saved. And she comes out of that with so much strength, deciding that she's going to follow the will of God. No matter what that means, she will try to listen and try to understand what he wants for her. And I think you see, even though she's sisters are dying, other people are dying, you start to see this transformation of this duty, she feels, to get people prepared for death. And by the time her daughter Rebecca dies, a few years later, she calls it a sorrowful grace. So she's sad that her daughter has died, but she's she's trying really hard to accept that this was God's will for her. It was God's will for Rebecca.
0: Yeah, I mean, she definitely wasn't looking to be rewarded by God for her successes, you know? I mean, during all this time of her own personal trials and tribulation, she was responsible for other individuals. Um, she had a young community, um, religious women, Religious woman community, Um, the Sister of Charity of St. Joseph, that she felt responsible for. Um, She had students of her school where they, some of them were boarders, they were from wealthy families who knew Elizabeth Ann Seton and were inspired by her and wanted their child to be educated by her, as well as just local children in the area and the local community. Um, She did go to an area that was very rural and poor. They were um not all of it with poverty but you know they were farmers you know they worked hard for a living they weren't of the upper class the socialite culture that she was so indoctrinated in growing up um but they all followed her and believed her so everybody would look at her and see how her school grew because you know if i'm right Bishop Kale himself thought Elizabeth was going to fail. You know, he wasn't expecting her to last in Amherstburg for more than a year. And sure enough, she's still there in Amherstburg. Um, but even then, like if you look at her and look at her life and look at everything she's gone through, you think, oh, she's a successful woman and God is rewarding her. But that's not what she was seeking for. What she was seeking for was responding to the will of God. Like I said earlier, like she didn't really have a plan. So here, you know, she lost her two daughters. Um, Her other daughter, Catherine, is very much alive. Um, And she's pushing her beyond atmosphere because she wants her to experience life. Because she felt like, you know, in a way, they were just always surrounded by grief. Um, Something she called like the Seton curse as oral tradition has called it. Um, she had two sons and, um, that's a whole nother story. We can't really go in too far in that, but she's doing her best. And, um, and then sorry. you do
1: see with William, I'll just say this small part, like when he goes into the Navy, which she was completely against, okay. um, she says to him, I'm not afraid that you're going to die. I'm afraid that you're going to lose your faith and I won't see you in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that, was what her focus became of how to prepare people to die and how to get them to heaven. Um, And that included herself, I think. I mean, we see Elizabeth struggled with sickness towards the end of her life. But in the last few months of her life, Mm -hmm. she decides to end her 10-year now friendship with Father Brute. And she says to a priest friend that it was a mutual decision. Because when she's listening to him, she's not listening to God. And that's something that she she can't risk, basically, is what she's saying. Um, She can't afford Um, because he was telling her things like you're going to get better. You're going to go straight to heaven, which a lot of us would like to hear. Right. But Elizabeth, even in those last moments of her life, she wanted to know what God's will was for her. Was she going to be good enough to be saved? And I guess some people would think that that might be like a panic or um, something like that. But that wasn't really what that was. That was, am I truly doing God's will? Am I being a good servant for him? Am I preparing my children, preparing my students, preparing my sisters for their eternity? Yeah,
0: I mean, there's a great quote that I love um, that we have pulled. Um, in fact, I am. I'm, I'm not cheating, but I did help put together this. And so there's quotes that both Lisa and I have pulled together. And this one is one of my favorites. Like, I feel like kind of summarize how she viewed in her relationship to God. Like, God has given me a great deal to do. Okay? You know, she was at one point in time, she just wanted to kind of live her life in a hermit. after her husband had died. Um, But instead, she had to balance it with ordinary tasks of motherhood and being a woman superior, um, religious superior. So she said, God has given me great deal to do. And I hope always to prefer his will to any wish of my own. And I think that goes back into trying to do good work, but also have a good death and striving for that. is it like, I don't know if you want to add to that before my last quote, because I, I just feel like this really capitalized everything. It said, keep well to what you believe to be the grace of the moment and leave the rest to God. And that's what she said. And so she took her last breath on January 4th of 1821 at the age of 46 um, with her community and her daughter by her bedside. Um, Unfortunately, her spiritual advisor, Father Brute, did not make it to her bedside at her last breath. He did show up a, a little bit a couple hours later, but he had documented the last several days of her life through sketches and quotes, and I feel that even after her death, the last kind of parting he really left was like, you know, we had a saint here on earth, and now we can rejoice that she's a saint in heaven. You know unbeknownst to him that what 154 years later she's really good at math um 154 years later he knew that that actually came to be true when she was canonized on september 14 1975.
1: um yeah so yeah i think i guess if we can leave it with that elizabeth is just such a beautiful example of just living her everyday life like she wasn't the, the saint that like a Joan of Arc that had this mission, did this great thing. She if you read through her life, she just really taught us how to um, listen to God. And she did that all the time. She had this great thing of like starting the rosary at the beginning of the day and continuing it in the middle of the day and finishing it at the end of the day so that she was in constant prayer with God. And she also had a devotion to the crucifix. I mean, she carried it with her. She would have one in the pocket of her apron. She was transfixed on one the night she was dying. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think if there's an example of someone who lived Lent and understood what it meant, it would be Elizabeth.
0: So before we open up to Q&A, I would love to just, again, I love quotes because I feel like these people just really kind of, again, capture the the spirituality uh, behind her and all her movements and what she strives for others. So in Elizabeth Ann Seton, we have a saint for our times. We have a woman of faith for a time of doubt and uncertainty, a woman of love for a time of coldness and division, a woman of hope for a time of crisis and discouragement. Thanks be to God for this saintly daughter for this violent woman of God's church. And that was said by Cardinal Terence Cook, who is currently a servant of God. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have anything else to say, <laughs> but we can only touch on so much, but we hope that you know the little bit of her story that we're able to share tonight, that you know it gives you some sort of inspiration during the season please come to the Seaton Shrine. Um, we are actually working towards a new visitor center, uh, hoping to open in 2023, where we can really share the stories of Elizabeth and Seaton along with very special artifacts, objects that connects to Elizabeth to help, you know, with, through the textile things, you can see, no, this person really was here, um, one of us, she is relatable, we can find some sort of inspiration and encouragement through her words and her work, as well as her legacy. Um, so I do, I mean, I have a we'll leave some materials here um, to help you understand what we're doing and, you know, again, encouraging that visit, but does anybody have any questions for us? Okay. well, I always say if no one has questions, that means we did a fairly good job. We covered everything. Um, We didn't leave any holes. So thank you. Um, Thank you so much for, again, having us this evening.